Well, let's get to it. Zechariah, why don't you turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 14 as we um, keep going right through the Bible. Kind of exciting times right now as we're nearing the end of the Old Testament. Um, you know, Wednesday night, I didn't quite get through the book of Zechariah. We, we left one little chapter tagged at the end here left to do. So this morning, we're gonna finish up Zechariah. You guys in? Let's, let's, let's finish it up. One little chapter right here, chapter 14 of Zechariah. And uh, for you football fans, uh, we are gonna see the greatest touchdown ever in the, it's ever gonna be in, in the future uh, is right here when Jesus touches down in his second coming. <laughs> he touches down on the Mount of Olives and uh, it's gonna be quite a deal. Um, Zechariah's been dramatic. Chapter 12, 13, and 14, we've been camping out for the past four Sundays uh, because it's a lot of stuff, a lot of information. Uh, some of it's, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, amazing because it's, it's it, what I love about the Zechariah of chapter 12, 13, 14 is just ask a Bible teacher, has that already happened yet? Or is it yet to come? And that'll tell you a lot about that, that ministry and what they believe in their eschatology. Uh, because there's a lot of people say, oh, this stuff has all happened already. Um, Bible prophecy is already sealed and fulfilled. And I always kind of chuckle because chapter 12, 13, and 14 is one of the roughest chapters for those guys to try to teach through. That's why you'll never see them teach through the book of Zechariah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very clear. We're talking about everything from the rapture of the church to the tribulation period, um, even into the millennial kingdom. And um, what we're gonna be dealing with is that, that time period that's known as the day of the Lord. We've been talking about that now for several weeks. Let's take a look, Zechariah 14, one. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Uh, the day of the Lord. Now, if you, by the way, are just joining us, uh, I wanna make sure you understand, the day of the Lord is not a single day, but it's talking about a time period. Like when an old timer says, well, back in my day, is he talking about a single day? No, he's talking about a season in their lives when he was young, how things happened and worked out in those days. Well, in that, that's kind of when the Bible says, in that day or the day of the Lord, it's talking about, about a very specific time where God intervenes in humanity and their future and also judging them for their past. Um, you know, the Bible is an amazing story. It starts with, you know, God creating the heavens and the earth and the keys and the title deed is given to humanity by God. And God, you know, gave a, a humanity a perfect earth without sin and gave Adam and Eve instructions on how to deal with the earth and live on the earth. But it took about 10 seconds and the very one thing they weren't supposed to do, they did. Uh, human nature is uh, to sin. So um, when Adam and Eve sinned, the world you know, entered into a fallen state, death, disease, suffering, sorrow, sadness. So when people say, I mean, one of the answers when people say, why, does, why do bad things happen in the world if God is love? Um, one of the answers is God lovingly gave humanity a free will to do what we want and, um, and, and lovingly gave us a perfect earth without disease and death. Uh, but we did a really good job wrecking everything. And then the rest of the Bible is God fixing our flub up. We messed up, we blew it, and the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna reconcile humanity back to myself, and that's the story of the gospel, where God becomes a man, lives among us, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins, raises up from the dead, proving that he was more than just some you know, religious guru or some claim to be uh, fixing the problem of sin. But Jesus proved his claim by resurrecting, and then after he rose from the grave, he ascended, but before he ascended, he said, I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come a second time, and that's when I'm gonna intervene um, into all the death and dying and sin and evil, uh, and I'm gonna reconcile not just all, all people, but the Jews specifically, the Lord has a plan to reconcile the Jewish people to himself. And that's gonna be really this day of the Lord. So if you're wondering about the time frame, I believe it's very clear and simple. The next thing on the list of things to do, the rapture of the church, to take his church out before he pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Um, it makes sense that God would take his bride out before he pours out his wrath on the world. Um, so, and the, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so the day of the Lord really begins, the rapture of the church, that kind of kicks off the day of the Lord. When, when the Lord intervenes, he pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world, seven years of tribulation, 
Um, and there's gonna be all kinds of crazy stuff. Read Revelation 6 through 19, it's the tribulation period, all the things that are gonna happen there, um, along with this world leader that's gonna come and deceive and uh, seemingly come in peace, but he's gonna come uh, bringing all kinds of death and all kinds of destruction. But right when, <coughs> excuse me, the Jews are hanging by a thread there in Jerusalem, and the world has surrounded Jerusalem in hatred, and they're ready to take over Jerusalem militarily. That's when Christ, after the seven-year period of tribulation, that's when Christ returns with 10,000s of his saints. That's us, Revelation 19. Um, and that's when Christ defends Jerusalem and the Jews. And that's when the Jews will be saved, um, like the Bible says. In fact, um, this is that time that, you know, the book of Romans talks about in Romans 11, 25 through 27. It says, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. This is talking to the Gentiles, by the way. Um, that you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. It is written, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So, um, you know, after the fullness of the Gentiles, rapture of the church, that's us, the, the church is largely made up of Gentiles. Uh, when that fullness of the church age comes, that's the rapture. And then during that time called the tribulation, Israel will be saved and they'll come out of Zion. Zion is where? Israel, yes, but what part of Israel? Jerusalem, Zion is Jerusalem, but it's also even more exactingly in Jerusalem, what? The, uh, not the Mount of Olives as much as the, temp, the Temple Mount. That Temple Mount area, and, and kind of including the Mount of Olives area. But um, the Temple Mount is kind of the epicenter of all these things. And so that's where Christ is gonna rule. And, and he has a covenant with them, like this verse says, to take away their sins. So one of the final outcomes of the day of the Lord, if you would, is the Jews will be restored in good standing with God during the time uh, at the end of the tribulation when Christ returns, uh, they'll be um, um, you know, back in business. But there's another part of the day of the Lord that's a little more ominous and should be a little concerning for many. Um, and that is one of the results is that God's gonna judge the world. And how is he gonna judge the world? Well, Isaiah chapter two, verse 17 tells us exactly how God's gonna do this. In the tribulation period and when he returns, the second coming of Christ, what he's gonna do according to Isaiah, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The ultimate final fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the day of the Lord that's mentioned here in the very first phrase of our chapter um, will come at the end of history when God with um, all powerful, all-knowing power will punish uh, the evil, unrepentant uh, sinners of the earth that refuse to repent and refuse to be saved. Um, this, this verse should cause people concern, don't you think? I mean, if we're talking about uh, June being LGBTQIA plus month, and it's, it's basically LGBTQIA plus pride month, and man, everybody's doing this, you know, and jumping on board, whether it's Disney or whoever, you know, uh, it, it's just so rampant and it's pride. We're, we're, it's all about pride, pride, pride. This is the kind of sin along with others. There's a lot of sins, but this is the one that you kind of see um, that sort of matches the rest of the Bible. It was Sodom and Gomorrah that had the same attitude. They could care less about what God thought and they were into all kinds of perversion and sexual immorality. But you know what was interesting? It wasn't the, you know, the fact that they were you know, homosexual rapists in Sodom, but it's because of pride. We, we know that pride was kind of the, the root of the problem. We, we read that by the way in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where the Lord told, tells us the problem with Sodom. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride. Fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her. Um, and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. You know, what's sad about the gay pride thing is, you know, you can see even here in this verse that pride was kind of the first thing, but it also led to that they were full and they had what they wanted, but they could care less about the other people that were hurting and uh, poor and needy. And, you know, we really see the same thing today. Um, I find it interesting that many of the people that sort of, you know, tout 
you know, LGBTQIA plus pride and stuff, um, they also could care less about how people are actually really doing. You know, what's interesting, um, as far as the transgender population, um, they, you know, they, the LGBTQIA plus, they, they say they have, you know, the, they, they, they really have their back and they're watching and all this stuff. But I, I would argue that we Christians actually care more about transgender people than the transgender community. When you see what they're doing, you know, it's so sad that the, the transgender community is the, the highest rate of suicide of any people group in the world. Should that cause concern for people? It causes concern for people like me because you know what, actually the church, most of the church that I know, they care about transgender people and their mental health. And suicide is not good at a 40% rate. Um, and yet they just ignore the well-being. It's all about their you know, pride and making sure that their pride is touted without really being honest about what's going on. Um, and by the way, I, I gotta speak as a pastor and maybe a little bit fire and brimstone because we're talking about the day of the Lord. Um, uh, but if you're all LGBTQIA+, ABCDEFG, if you are on board with that, um, you need to repent. You gotta repent. Well, Brett, I, I don't, you know, you had me at L, you know, lesbian, gay, that, the Bible makes that very clear. But all the other acronyms, it just kind of gets more troubling as we get down the line. And the worst one of all is the plus at the end. It, I can't believe anyone on the planet would sign off saying, yes, I'm pro LGBTQIA plus. Because if you look it up, the plus actually means something. I looked on the gay and lesbian websites uh, yesterday because I wanted to make sure I had a clear definition of what the plus is, and here's what it is. Um, it's a denotation of everything on the gender and sexuality spectrum that letters and words can't yet describe. So if you're LGBTQIA+, that means anything goes, anything goes. Um, and I, I think there's children in the audience here, so I'm not gonna mention what those things are and what we're seeing even right now. But we are seeing, and I will say this, we're seeing the sexualization of children. Those people that do those things like three weeks ago used to be thrown in jail. Today, they're being celebrated as they do these things with, you know, these, um, I'm not even gonna get into that, but it's, it's, it's just heartbreaking. And then the puberty blocking, you know, um, you know uh, things that they're doing, putting puberty blockers in children at five years old and stuff. This is abuse and it's evil. And it makes me wonder, Lord, come quickly. When are you gonna intervene? Humanity has lost its marbles. And, um, and I go back to that verse in Isaiah that says, that's what's gonna happen. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men you know, shall be made low and the, and the Lord alone shall be exalted. There won't be gay pride in the day of the Lord. They'll be just saying, that's God and we're not. And uh, he is only worthy. Uh, that's what's gonna happen. So if you're, you know, teetering on pro rainbow flag and all that stuff, it's time to repent. I love what one of my buddies did here. I, there's a guy in our church, very successful, um, you know, uh, uh, an amazing uh, guy. Probably one of the, truly, I'm not just saying this, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Like truly kind, loving for, and he loves like, you know, just every kind of person. He's very, very gracious. Um, super knowledgeable and talented. And when this whole June month comes along, you know, suddenly he sees on his own profiles of his workplace and on his LinkedIn and all stuff, because of where he works, they changed their logo with, uh, of course, the LGBTQIA plus flag. And it was part of his, you know, his thing. It was, they were making it look like he's into that. And, they, you know, they cram this down everyone's throats. It's something that they've, you know, they've, they've worked over years to slowly make people just kind of get along with it. And by the way, I gotta say, um, they've gotten away with horrible things because years ago, Christian pastors and churches started saying stuff like this. We, need, we only need to talk about what we're for. We need not talk about what we're against. We need to talk about what we're for. Remember when that was kind of a thing? That was stupid. Um, I thought it was stupid then, I think it's stupid now. Well, Brett, that's not very nice to say. No, it was stupid, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus talked about what he was against. Jesus talked about what he was for, but Jesus very clearly and didn't pull any punches when he talked about what he was against. Um, we need to be more like Jesus, not this fluffy, puffy, oh, we're only gonna talk about what we're for. No, that, look where we are today, how's that working out for us? I say that we are meant to be salt and light in this world and speak true things 
The truth will set you free. Um, uh, don't be duped into just kind of, oh, I'm gonna mouse in the corner and not say anything. Well, anyway, this guy I was telling you about, he just took the logo off and, and anything that the company logo was on his stuff, he just took it off. Well, he was called into the management, even though he's kind of a high, super, super high level. They brought him into the, you know, the next level, um, which he's personal friends with that, that person uh, and he's greatly respected, but she had to say, now, you know, you, you really can't do that. And he said, and I love what he said, and I'm not gonna do it justice, but he said something that sent, with a smile on his face, said, you know me and you know who I am, and I do not hate anyone. And he said, that's the end of that discussion. And, and she said, you're right? I mean, she really had nothing to say. And, and I know, because I know who this guy is, nobody could say anything different. It's like he was able to just kind of say, mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if some of you might be willing to kind of, not in mean-spiritedness or, you know, that, that's where we, I think, sometimes misrepresent when people get kind of hateful and mean. Um, but you do feel defensive. I mean, Christians do feel attacked, no question. But, but we need to still be kind and loving. I love what my buddy did. He just smiled lovingly, said, you know me. You know who I am. Um, and, but I love that he stood his ground and, and really, you know, put himself at risk in some ways. I wonder if, if maybe if the church needs to be a little more salty and a little more lighty, if you know what I mean. Well, I'm off course here, but I need to keep going here. So the day of the Lord, man, it's part of that's gonna be God judging the arrogance, prideful, sinful part of man. And that's gonna be very sobering. And that's what we're gonna read about here. So chapter 14, verse one, behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And now we're talking directly about Jerusalem. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken. The houses rifled, or some of your newer translations say ransacked. Um, And the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In the last days, you know, during the tribulation, toward the end of the tribulation, nations are gonna gather against Jerusalem. What's interesting is we're already seeing that happen today. We, we talked about that two, two weeks in a row. What's the big deal about Jerusalem? If you missed those studies from two and three weeks ago, um, you might wanna catch up on that, very important stuff. But we're seeing the posturing of the nations. There's very few nations that actually uh, love Israel or care about Jerusalem. Um, you know, it's interesting because they're gonna chop it in half, it says here. And, and we learned, um, if you turn back a page, if you remember chapter 12, verses two and three, this is what we looked at, um, where it said, behold, I will make Jerusalem, verse two of chapter 12, a cup of trembling or poison unto all the people round about when they shall uh, be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, the day of the Lord, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. So this is a theme of Zechariah talking about when the world is gonna turn against Jerusalem. Again, the Bible teachers say, oh, this stuff has already happened. When did that happen? When did all the nations of the world gather against Jerusalem? That hasn't happened yet. Um, it, it, you know, there was a couple interesting uh, close times like when you know Hitler was against the Jews, but that wasn't really as against Jerusalem because the Jews weren't really largely in Jerusalem at that time. But now we see a literal Jerusalem and the world uh, hating and wanting to do what? The world wants to chop Jerusalem in half today. That's what the political um, story is. Um, you know, it's interesting because there was a Sun article, The Price of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, President Biden, this whole article talks about how President Biden is gonna go in, uh, to Jerusalem in, in, um, in July. And the world is kind of, you know, the pro-Israel people are like, oh no, this is a bad thing, that Biden's going to Jerusalem. And he's going there with a plan. But President Biden's price for a deal with Saudi Arabia is coming into view ahead of his yet unannounced Middle East trip. Uh, the price is Jerusalem which Mr. Biden would take the first steps toward dividing <clears throat> by opening in Israel's capital what our uh, ben- Benny Avni reports would be a de facto consulate to the Palestinian uh, Arabs. It would be a start toward unraveling America's recognition of Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. 
Biden's road to Riyadh runs through Jerusalem. The currency for securing Saudi Arabia's cooperation with the United States is an intensified American push for the creation of a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital. Um, so this is what Biden, everybody's saying, what, you know, what he's gonna go and do. Um, and people are upset about that. I'll show you even more about that in a second, but be, be in prayer about that because the Bible says the nation that tries to divide Jerusalem will be cut in pieces. They're like drinking a cup of poison. And we're, we're seeing our, this, this administration go that direction. I don't care what political party you're from or I'm not making a political statement. I'm just telling you what is. If you read your Bible, it just makes it clear about what happens to the nations that try to deal with Jerusalem. They're handling a cup of trembling. So here in Zechariah 14, we see that Jerusalem's gonna be hanging by a thread there in chapter 14, verses two and three, or two, for one and two, I should say. Um, but then something radical is gonna happen starting there in verse three. It says, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. We looked at that last week, how when God fights in the day of battle, you don't wanna mess with God. He's also, we talked about how he's compassionate, kind, loving, patient, but he's also a warrior and he's mighty in battle, the Bible says. Uh, you don't wanna mess with uh, God in those days. Now, how is his return gonna look? That's what Zechariah 14 gives us. It says in verse four, <clears throat> it says, um, and he, his feet shall stand in that day <clears throat> upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, which is another old name of Petra, by the way. Yea, ye shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that, there, that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Huh? What? Light during the evening? Did we move to Alaska? Like what's going on here? Well, I don't know for sure, but what, what we need to go away with on these you know, verses, verses four through seven, is a massive cataclysmic earth event. And you know, some people, we, we've talked about Mount of Olives splitting, but that sounds so localized and so small. Zechariah 14 sort of broadens our understanding. This is gonna be massive. Um, and we'll even see the dimensions of this new rift or valley that's gonna be created by this earthquake. Um, you know, uh, the Lord says, even as in the days of Uzziah, there was a big earthquake during Uzziah's time. Um, we'll talk about the earthquake that's gonna happen here in a second. But the first thing we note is when Christ returns, he's gonna stand on the Mount of Olives. And one of the things that you should know is that the way he ascended into heaven is the way he's gonna return. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. He's gonna to return to the Mount of Olives and put his foot down there. And that's what's gonna kick into gear, this earthquake and all this cataclysmic stuff. Um, Acts chapter one, uh, we read the kind of another mention of this. Um, in verse nine, it says, and when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, that's his ascension, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are probably angels. Verse 11, which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The way you saw him go, that's the way he's gonna come. Now we could go into this and talk about this at length. He left when Jerusalem was in turmoil because the iron fist of Rome was causing chaos. And it would be only a few you know, decades later after Jesus ascended, but the Romans would wipe out and crush Jerusalem. So he ascended during a time of Roman occupation and, and crushing. 
What's interesting, remember, he's gonna return during the time of those 10 toes of Daniel chapter two, the 10 nation confederation that's gonna be against Israel. And that old, the old 10 toes came out of the old Roman empire. There's some interesting links for you, you know, Bible students and, and people that like to think a little more on this prophecy stuff. Um, there's some interesting correlations about when he left politically and when he comes back politically. It's gonna be very similar, but it's gonna be chaotic to say the least but he's gonna return during a time of real chaos and Jerusalem's gonna be hanging by a thread. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, Jesus is gonna return, the earth will quake and the Mount of Olives will split as the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Now, by the way, um, there was a, king, a, a massive earthquake in the Middle East. And, and in my journeys and travels through the Middle East, um, there's some interesting places you go where you see massive evidence of this 10.0 uh, earthquake on the Richter scale. This is a place uh, called Jerish. And I bring people to this place. This is the Emperor Hadrian Gate of the city Jerish in the country of Jordan. And I bring Athe Creekers there. Um, and we're in this hippodrome racing some Palestinian kids. Um, and um, and uh, this hippodrome, uh, don't laugh, I, I just said hippo because that's the uh, word for horse, not me. Um, <laughs> but uh, they raced chariots in that place. But anyway, this is a big, massive city that was destroyed by a huge earthquake in 749. And uh, you know, we get to go and hang around with these, these people and stuff. And, but this old city of Jarish is an amazing archeological dig. Um, you know, all these pillars that you see uh, were knocked over by the earthquake. And so when the archeological digs came, they just found all these knocked over pillars. And they literally just propped them back up and, and you can see kind of how the city looked. It's an amazing place. Some of you, if you've been to Israel, maybe you've gone to Bet Shean, uh, another amazing city, not quite as big of an archeological ruin as Jarish, but it's similar in that the city was destroyed by the same earthquake. Um, uh, again, one of the Decapolis cities like Jerish, uh, this was a huge city um, that was destroyed uh, by a massive earthquake. And you can see the pillars and stuff that they've propped back up, but there's still a lot of the pillars that were shaken down and just left there after the giant earthquake there um, at Bitshan. By the way, Bitshan is a place, if you remember your Bible stories, where King Saul was hung, his body was hung over the wall of the city after killing him uh, or, you know, after he you know, died on the field of battle and suicide. But um, an amazing place. And you can see that this is the way the earthquake sort of left everything. This is the part they didn't prop back up. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, when the Bible says, as the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, this region of the world is re ready and ripe for another big one, they say. Now they've been saying that about Oregon for a long time. We're gonna have the big one. Um, and we all say, well, that's never happened. And we, well, you better hope it doesn't. Uh, but if it does, um, you know, it's one of the things you don't expect. The Bible says you can expect uh, when Jesus comes back, there's gonna be a massive earthquake like in the days of Uzziah. And, um, and you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, we, we read about this valley that's gonna be created by the Lord's return, this earthquake. And then we're gonna see the dimensions of that in a second. But one thing we looked at last week, remember the fountain of water that's gonna spring up from that crack in the, in the mountain? We picked that up again in verse eight. And there it says in verse eight, um, and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea in the summer and in the winter it shall be. So we looked at that last week. I won't dive into that again, but that's gonna be bringing water to the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. Dead Sea's gonna come back to life. It's a great picture of what Christ is gonna do. But look at verse nine, it says, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there shall be one Lord and his name one. Again, is this a verse you can explain? Oh, that's already happened. Where Lord has been Lord over all the earth, that hasn't happened yet. We, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, and I say that sort of jokingly because there's people think we are gonna bring in the kingdom of God. That's not gonna happen. The Lord himself is gonna come and he's gonna set up his kingdom. Mark the word Lord in your notes or in your Bible there. Notice the capital letters, L-O-R-D, capital. That means it's the, the word you know, from the burning bush where Moses got that great tetragrammaton that they wrote down the four letters, Y-H-W-H, -H, where we would say Yehovah or Yahweh or Jehovah, however you wanna say it. It's the name of God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not 
pagan God of Baal, not Buddha, not Krishna, not Oprah, not, you know, like, like you have to understand, um, this, is the, this is the time where the whole world will say, well, that's God. And there'll be no question about it. Did you see just last week, it's so sad, you know, Gallup did another one of these polls, uh, but they, they found that we are um, more atheists than ever. Uh, the world is, the United States is more atheist than ever. Far fewer people believe in God than even a year ago. <clears throat> so we're seeing a move away from believing in God. It'll be at this moment, the world will believe in God again. Uh, there'll be no question because he will be there uh, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That's verse nine. Now this valley that's created by the earthquake is defined in verse 10 and 11. It says, and all the land shall be turned as a plain. Mark that word plain, um, because it's an interesting word, Arava in uh, Hebrew, which is the geographical name of a deep rift or valley that would happen. And so you can kind of put that word in there and understand this is a a new valley that's gonna be in Israel. Uh, The land shall be turned as a valley or plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananiel under the king's winepress and men shall dwell in it, this valley, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Um, Jerusalem will be a safe place to live. Has Jerusalem ever been a safe place to live? No, it's funny, the name Yerushalem means city of peace, but it's been everything but that. But it will be that when Jesus comes and he rules in Jerusalem, it will be the city of peace. That's gonna happen. Um, Now this verse 10 could be a little bit dizzying, all these places and towers and locations. By the way, the Hananiel Tower is kind of interesting because um, I was reading one of my old commentaries a while ago and uh, he said that this is not a literal thing because we know there was no such thing as Hananiel's Tower. Um, it must be figurative. And um, he tried to make this case about making it all figurative. Um, and then shortly after he died, you know, commentators are funny. Some, you know, taters are more common than others. Uh, but this commentator died. And then about uh, five years after that, they found the Hananiel Tower uh, and located it where it is. It was all, you know, inscribed with a stone plaque and everything. It was kind of cool. Um, but the point is, um, and I'm not gonna, you know, you can do the work and you can even look this up. It's, it's not hard to find some of the definitions, but this is gonna be a massive, huge valley. It's not gonna be just Jerusalem. It's actually gonna be like 30 miles. It's gonna change the whole geography. Um, those that have done the hard work on what this is gonna look like, it's basically saying that the hill country around Jerusalem, the rolling mountains, it's gonna be leveled and flattened. Jerusalem will still be high, but it won't be as high and it won't be uh, all mountainous. It'll, it'll be leveled out more in a, a, a geographical plain kind of thing. Um, so <clears throat> all that to say, um, uh, Israel's gonna be, uh, uh, Jerusalem's gonna be safely inhabited. Um, it's, it's sad to see how Jerusalem's always been, uh, you know, under threat. Did you see just two days ago that Hamas were firing more rockets from Gaza? right over the Gaza border into Israel. They would love to reach Jerusalem if they could, but their rockets are pretty um, outdated and not very exact, thank the Lord. And the Israeli Iron Dome system doesn't let that happen. Um, I was down on the Gaza Strip border with uh, some of my buddies. Um, when you get all these videos that I show you from Israel, this is a crew that I took over there and we kind of traveled all over Israel with cameras and stuff and getting some of these shots. It was pretty fun, but uh, me, and then there's Micah on my right. Micah's the guy that does my keynote with me, helps me get my keynote stuff for, for you guys together. He also shoots the video of all this stuff. Um, but we're, the, the reason I like this picture of us just kind of standing is, is you can see the pavement behind us and then there's a little green hedge way in the back there. That's the Gaza Strip right there. We're standing at the Gaza Strip and there's literally rockets during this time that were flying over uh, the border into Israel and, and the Iron Dome would shoot the rockets down out of the sky and stuff like that. But um, when we were traveling this area, it's so sad because it's this beautiful kind of tropical sort of San Diego feeling area. It's really nice there, um, except for the rockets. Um, but this is some footage from the Israeli Defense Force uh, tweet, tweeter, uh, Twitter. Uh, they were tweeting uh, this video footage of um, response to a rocket fired by Hamas just two days ago. Um, uh, is, Israeli civilians that were being targeted by Hamas. 
So IDF aircraft uh, struck a weapons manufacturing site and three Hamas military posts in Gaza. Um, and Israel's, the Defense Force, they said, we hold the Hamas terrorist organization responsible for all terrorist activity uh, emanating from Gaza. And so, um, you know, the world looks at this, and this is crazy. The world says, see, the Israelis are blowing up a bunch of Palestinians in the Hamas and in the, in the Gaza Strip. But nobody remembers, oh wait, who shot first? Who shot the rockets to begin with that made the Israelis retaliate? The Israelis say, we have the right to defend ourselves. But for some reason, the world just doesn't really acknowledge Israel's right to defend itself. And it makes sense that the world's gonna come against Israel and specifically against Jerusalem. What's hilarious is the unfairness. Do you remember when the Israelis built the wall uh, to keep uh, you know, the um, bombers of, of you know, the terrorists out of Jerusalem and out of, out of Israel? They built a wall and the world condemned that. They can't believe the Israelis built a wall. Uh, and it was basically trying to keep the Hamas from Gaza from blowing them up. Um, and, and when they built the wall, it actually has been safe relatively since then. But you won't hear things like this. Did you see this? That Egypt had to build a wall too um, between the Gaza Strip and Egypt because the crazy Hamas in, in Gaza were causing trouble for the Egyptians. Um, and so the Egyptians said, yeah, we need a wall too. And so you can actually see they're finishing the wall even as we speak. It's a barrier security wall because the fundamentalist Muslims that live in Gaza Strip are too crazy, even for the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, they've been working a big concrete border, according to the Times of Israel. They're still, they're still constructing that right now as we uh, speak. But, you know, the funny thing about the Palestinian problem is... Uh, one thing I've mentioned is, you know, we need to pray for the Palestinians and, um, and it's heartbreaking because I have Palestinian friends that just want to live safely in Israel. They, they don't want to make war against the Jews. Um, did you know, this is one article among many, the Jerusalem Post put this out, uh, Palestinian support for two-state solution, chopping Jerusalem in half like Biden wants to do, and the world is largely saying, Palestinian support is losing ground, poll finds. The percentage of those who believe, of the Palestinians who believe a two-state solution is the best way to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict dropped from 39% to 29% just this, as recent as this April. So 29% of the Palestinians say we want a Palestinian state. What does the other 70% want? Um, they wanna just live peaceably as, uh, Israel, with Israel. Um, so it's really, the, this, this number shows the, the, uh, that the, the Palestinians are just being used as pawns to hate Israel. Um, but a lot of the Palestinians don't hate Israel at all. It's an interesting problem. But anyway, um, according to our text here, uh, Israel's finally gonna be safe once Christ comes and rules and reigns there in verse 11. Now in verse 12, something kind of horrifying happens. Uh, verse 12 says, and this shall be when the plague, uh, be the plague, there's a plague that's coming, wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand on their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. Um, does this sound like the Indiana Jones movie? Remember when they opened the Ark of the Covenant? Ah! And the eyes melting down their face? That's kind of what's gonna happen here. Uh, not a good day at the office. Um, now, um, you say, Brett, what's, who's this gonna be? Uh, all the nations that go against Israel. Um, I mentioned this on Wednesday, but I just found this amazing. Did you know there was a secular, uh, you know, news, Israeli news agency that quoted this verse just last week? Um, and they quoted it in the, uh, you know, anticipation of Biden coming to Jerusalem. Check this out. Um, this um, Israel 365 news, Biden reverses Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital report. And this report basically says Biden's gonna mess up the whole thing by you know, putting this, um, this sort of proxy Palestinian embassy sort of there in Jerusalem or their you know, capital as, as Biden wants it to be. But the funny thing is, here's this, this news agency that starts quoting the Hebrew Bible. They quote Zechariah 14, 12. 
Um, and they're saying it in light of Americans. Do you understand that? The, the Israelis in Jerusalem are saying, this is what's gonna happen to the Americans because of Biden. Their eyeballs are gonna melt in their sockets. Their flesh is gonna consume off them. Like that should cause us concern because the Bible says those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And here we are very openly, the Jews are saying, you know, um, America's become a curse with the Biden administration's policy toward Israel. If you wanna follow what the Bible says, you should not be pro, you know, chopping Jerusalem in half. We do know, however, that's gonna happen. Israel, uh, the Jerusalem will be chopped in half by the, war, the nations that hate Israel and gather against Israel in the last days, but this is what happens to them. So you say, Brett, well, what is this that's happening to them? I mean, I know their skin melts off, their eyeballs out of their sockets, <laughs> but what's gonna happen? Don't know for sure. Could be nuclear uh, weapons used with the radioactive fallout. There's uh, some similarities in the way this is described uh, here. And, and by the way, Israel has nuclear weapons, uh, lots of them. Um, some people say, uh, no, it won't be uh, that, it'll be chemical warfare, could be. Um, when you read about the Ezekiel 38, 39 battle, there's also professional people who have to come and clean up the dead bodies that are gonna be from that battle. Because you know, if you find a body or a bone, you're supposed to put a, a little flag there and say, don't touch this and run away. And then the professionals come and have to bury the dead bodies. What's that all about in Ezekiel 39? Who knows? Maybe it's just a miraculous thing that God does. You know, like when he, 185,000 soldiers were killed by one angel in one night when the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem back in the old days. Uh, who knows what this is gonna be, but it's gonna be horrifying. And all I know is we don't want to be a part of this group of nations that's gonna come against Israel. Um, one of the things I'm thankful for, by the way, is the Lord's patience. You know, he could have done all this centuries ago or months ago or years ago. Why does the Lord not make this all happen? This melting of eyeballs and nations being subdued. Um, all I know is, you know, Peter answers this question to a degree here in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack or lazy concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I love that the Lord is saying, man, I'm gonna wait till the maximum amount of people repent and are saved because that's the heart of the Lord. He doesn't want anyone to be crushed or eyeballs melting or faces melting off their face. The Lord says, I want people to repent and be saved and be uh, you know, um, not having this horrible future. Um, now, by the way, uh, one thing you should know about you know, the, the, this melting of faces, of the, the Jews, people, the, one of the things the world doesn't understand is how tiny Israel is. Size of New Jersey, um, they can't afford to have these nations gathering against them. And, and so that's why some people believe the Jews will use nuclear weapons. Um, and it has to do with sort of a worldview. The United States, we don't have a tactical sort of plan like the Jews do. The, the, the Jews have a thing, you can call it two things, the Masada complex, they call it, or the Samson option. Um, remember Masada? Let me show you Masada. This is since I've been showing you the places in Israel. This is uh, that fortress, rock fortress that uh, King Herod the Great built for his Roman stuff. He never went there. But um, the, the, probably the most famous story that happened at this place where I bring his uh, Athey Creekers is we see this place where um, the last stand of the Jews after the Rome, here's some Athey Creekers coming up the tram. You can hike up this hill if you want to. This is a high speed version of this, but it takes about an hour. So we uh, didn't have time for our whole group to hike that. But, um, but it's an amazing place where there's the Roman ramp. They built that ramp that goes up to the um, Masada. But they, they, when you are an IDF soldier and you're new and you're being sworn in, they, they, they make you hike up to the top of this and that's where you get your stripes or whatever and you, you're, uh, you become an official soldier. But you swear to upholding the tactical sort of thing of the Samson option. That is, if people are gonna take our nation down, we'll go down with it. Like that's part of their thing. United States, we could lose New York and Los Angeles and maybe even still survive. Um, but Israel, if they lose Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, they're, they're toast. Just two big bombs would take uh, you know, Israel out. And the Jews are saying, we can't let that happen. Um, uh, and so um, the nations are gonna come with this sort of hatred and the Jews are gonna defend themselves. But ultimately, Jesus is gonna come and defend Israel. So it goes on in verse 13. 
It says, and it shall come to pass in that day, uh, that great tumult from the Lord, that's where it's gonna come from, the Lord, shall be among them and they shall lay hold everyone on, uh, on the hand of his neighbor and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah shall also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. Uh, and so shall the plague of the horse and the mule and of the camel and of the ass and all the beasts that shall be in, in these tents as this plague. In other words, this is kind of the end of it. Um, the, everything is gonna be done. The, the enemies of Israel are gonna be subdued. All the gold and wealth of the hatred nations that are gonna be destroyed are gonna be collected. And that's when we see uh, the kingdom set up that is when Jesus begins to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Check out verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, uh, there won't be much left by the way. Um, if you read Revelation 6 or 19, um, much of the population of the earth will be wiped out during the tribulation period. So it'll come to pass, verse 16, that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. Uh, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So after all this battle and warfare and bloodshed is done, suddenly Christ is ruling in Jerusalem and suddenly people are doing what? They're gonna keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. Did you know that's one of the feasts that'll be um, engaged, uh, re-engaged during the millennial kingdom? Uh, why the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, um, for, for you guys that are new to the Bible, the Feast of Tab Tabernacles is the third of the great annual feasts and festivals of the Jews. It was instituted in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43. And um, interestingly enough, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. And, and the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was um, a, a period of eight days where they would leave their homes and live in tents or booths, little buildings that they'd build outside of their houses, little temporary dwellings. And, um, and um, they would do this often with branches of trees and build little lean-tos and stuff. And why would they do this? Two things they would be doing. Number one, to be a memorial of their wilderness wanderings when they lived in tents for 40 years wandering with Moses in the wilderness. Um, they'd commemorate that. Uh, but the second part was to celebrate the harvest with thanksgiving. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses nine through 18 talks about the sort of a, a thanksgiving sort of part of the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, that'll be reinstituted once Christ rules and reigns. They're gonna get back to the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and it shall be, verse 17, that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So if you're living in the millennial kingdom and you don't wanna to go to Jerusalem, you probably need to because rain is sort of important. Just ask the people in California right now. Um, we in Portland forget the need for rain sometimes. Uh, verse 18, and it, now, now before we read this, Egypt is a type of what? The world, okay, good. So this is gonna be used idiomatically as the world. You'll see kind of contextually what I'm talking about here, but verse 18, and if the family of Egypt that uh, uh, go not up to Jerusalem and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So. Uh, that's a big component of the, of the millennial kingdom is Feast of Tabernacles is gonna be kind of a big deal. But there's another big deal and this is how Zechariah ends it. So, so Christ is ruling from the throne. The enemy nations were wiped out. Everybody else now has to kind of, it's sort of an enforced righteousness in the millennial kingdom. People kind of have to do what the king says. Um, but there's one other thing that's gonna be reinstituted that we're gonna see here, verse 20. In that day, there shall be upon the bells, or better translation, some of your Bibles say um, bridles. The bridles of the horses will be written, you know, holiness unto the Lord. Um, you say, wow, that's kind of awkward. Why are we talking about horses bridles and having names on the bridles? Uh, don't know for sure, but you have to understand the horse was the powerful war machine of Bible times. So this is speaking of the power and the authority of the Lord with these horses and their bridles. 
And if you know horses, they're powerful animals. They're impressive animals. And that's, that's the idea here is we're supposed to kind of go, wow, this is sort of a heavy, intense sort of thing. Holiness unto the Lord. And now we're gonna talk about a Tupperware party. Uh, verse, verse 20, it says, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Now you're not, you, you might be saying, Brad, why are we talking about pots and bowls all of a sudden? Um, this is where we as Gentiles don't really understand the, the importance of this. This is sort of, again, saying something that's saying the, the smaller thing to speak of something amazing. Busting out the pots and bowls in the millennial kingdom means they're going to reinstitute the sacrificial system at the Temple Mount. It's a big deal. Um, and check this out, it goes on, verse 21. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Um, the Canaanite is sort of, again, an idiom for impurity, unclean people that are sinful. There's gonna be no room for that because the Canaanite will have no room there. So they're gonna be um, you know, basically going uh, back and gathering uh, in Jerusalem. By the way, there's, isn't it amazing, even during the millennial kingdom, there's gonna be a stubbornness saying, we don't wanna go to Jerusalem. And the Lord's gonna kind of make that happen. Some of you struggle with that even today. Not you guys, but some people uh, don't wanna gather in the name of the Lord. You know, the guy that says, I'm not into organized religion. And the stupid saying, I just, church is out in the woods for me. I go to church and fish and the, you know, fly fishing and stuff like that. That's just stupid, you're being ridiculous. Um, church is people. And when you are told by God to gather, well, that's the Old Testament, Brett. Well, the New Testament says it this way, that we are not to be forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some of the people are, um, but exhorting one another, and, and watch this, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the day of the Lord, as it gets closer and closer, does anybody sense the day is getting closer? Boy, I sure do. <laughs> and so what should we be doing? Gathering all the more. Like we should be, as the day gets closer, we need to gather all the more, according to Hebrews uh, 10, 25. So if you're one of those people, time to repent and uh, say, well, I don't like crowds, tough bananas. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful, nice, tiny churches that are wonderful. And you can go, you don't have to come to a giant church. You can, or, you know, um, sometimes a giant church is easier to just come and sort of blend in too. I mean, there's all kinds of options for you, but don't forsake the gathering of the saints. So, you know, the, the um, holiness to the Lord, the sacrificial system. Now you say, Brett, why are they gonna bring the sacrificial system back to Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom? Kind of interesting, and we'll end on this, uh, going to the table of the Lord, because it's appropriate. In the Old Testament, how did they commemorate what was coming when Jesus would die on the cross? How did they foreshadow that in their worship? The sacrificial system. They'd slaughter a lamb and put it on the altar on the temple. And they did that in the Old Testament, pointing forward to when Christ, when John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They'd look forward to that. Then when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, no longer were we doing the sacrificial system. Thank the Lord for that. The church age that you and I are living in, what do we use to commemorate the death of Christ on the cross? Communion. Um, but what's interesting is when the church is raptured, it seems that communion won't be the thing anymore. It'll go back to, as the Jews now are back in business, as the Jews are now serving around the temple in the millennial kingdom, they're gonna get back to their sacrificial system, looking backward for the Jews to what Jesus did for them on the cross. One of the things that Zechariah uh, tells us, unlike any other of the prophets, is he says, during this time, the Jews will say, Wow, as they see Jesus, they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And he'll say, I received these wounds in the house of my friend. They're gonna see Jesus as the lamb that had been slain. 